You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with Kirk Duplessis to talk about how and why new investors should invest using options, how Warren Buffett, one of the best investors ever, uses options in his portfolio, why options don't get much coverage in financial media, how to unconventionally but successfully grow a business, and much, much more. For those who don't know who Kirk is, he is a successful options trader, real estate investor, and entrepreneur. He is the founder and head trader at OptionAlpha.com, which he has built to be a leading authority in options trading education and research. I'm super excited to bring you this great conversation with Kirk Duplessis. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me, I have Kirk Duplessis from Option Alpha. Welcome to the show, Kirk. Thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. In today's interview, we'll get into talking about a bunch of different things. We'll talk about trading options, entrepreneurship, how you built your business. But first, I want to talk about your background. What led you to options trading and ultimately starting Option Alpha? My journey to Option Alpha was not as clear as maybe it is now today. Like even just in the last six months, I think I've had a lot of clarity and kind of understanding like how I got here. Because a lot of people have asked me, like, how did you get to trading? And the typical answer, which is, well, I went to school and I went to University of Virginia and graduated from there with a finance degree. Everybody and my friends were going to Wall Street. So I naturally went to Wall Street and worked for Deutsche Bank in the M&A department, had a rotation on a trading desk and left there, was a read analyst. So I got to see that side of it. Like To me, that's the very forward-facing answer to all of that. And so we could dive into all of those pieces or none of those pieces or whatever, but that's the trajectory that I basically found myself on. I think the real answer is I fell into options trading almost on purpose because when I was a kid, like I grew up in a very great household. My parents were amazing parents. I never take anything away from them. But the only downside is my parents were both in the same industry all the time. So they worked in the same industry. And so because they worked in the same industry, our income as a family would fluctuate like crazy. And we're talking like crazy volatility. And I could tell as a kid. And some years it'd be really, really bad. And I could tell as a kid. And they just had no choice. I mean, there's no optionality in their life. It was either really good or really bad. And so I guess you could say like by default, like subconsciously, I just now avoid as much volatility as humanly possible. So when I started actually trading, I started trading and did all of the normal things that people do. I tried to do stocks, tried to do day trading, tried to do futures. I babysat Forex trades all night. And like what I ultimately ended up in was the situation subconsciously that I've been in my entire life, which is lots and lots of volatility with no real end in sight. And so I think because I understand the mathematics behind options and it felt like at least initially and what kind of like led me down the path was it felt like I had more control over what I was doing. It wasn't just like whimsically throwing money into something that I didn't understand. And so my path to options trading started that way, just trying to understand, okay, how do I gain a real edge in the market? Can I gain an edge if there is? Like, how do I get better at doing that? And, you know, fast forward 11 years now, I've been doing this and that's still the mission I'm on is to figure that out or do a better job of it, I guess. I'm guessing your parents weren't options traders? No, no, they were not options traders. They were in the mortgage business. So if mortgages were really good, it was really good. And if mortgages were really bad, it was really bad. And I know that now. And I didn't learn that until, I mean, like literally like six months ago, I was like, holy crap, my entire life has been like just this avoidance of volatility. And it's, you know, spurred into everything I do. 
in one of your recent podcast episodes, you talked about how investors should get started investing with options early in their career, even if they're brand new. Talk to us about that idea a little bit. That really piqued my interest because even though I trade options myself, I never would have thought to recommend that to someone who is a new investor. And so I'd love to hear why you think that is. To me, it's really easy because look, if I believe that options are one of the supreme ways in which you can control risk, control your investment, take a non-directional or you know multi-directional approach to the markets, then why wouldn't I think that somebody should start it early, right? Like I think about like my kids and so like our youngest daughter, she just actually started kindergarten today, literally the day we're recording this. But you know, she had an interest a couple of months ago in real estate. And so like my wife does all the real estate buying for us. And you know, we own a handful of rental properties. And my daughter had an interest in it. And I could have just said, well, you know, it's like a grown-up thing. You know, like you'll do it later on. I thought to myself, like, that's a stupid response and like so ignorant. Like, why can't she start learning about this even on her level right now? Like, why can't she take some money from her piggy bank and start to like invest it into like a property? So she actually helped us buy a property and she put $22 and like 13 cents in. And now every month in the mail, like we secretly, and if she listens to this later on, I'll be totally like found out. But like we secretly put like a dollar in the, you know, the mailbox and it's in an envelope and it says Molly on it. So like she understands like those mechanics of how you should do it. So to get back to the real like question, like I think that if you're a beginner trader, you have so much time ahead of you, it would only work to your benefit to start trading early. Because if you can learn the mechanics now, while you don't have your life to gamble with, then you'll be much better equipped in the future when you actually have a family and it matters. When you have kids and it matters if you blow up your account or not. And you know, a lot of people like they get in options trading late and they don't realize that they're literally on borrowed time. If you get in options trading and you're, you know, 60 or 70 years old, no disrespect, but you just don't have that much time left, you know? And so like the quicker you can get started, the easier it'll be for you to increase your trade count, which ultimately helps with your ability to generate successful income. And, you know, so I think the earliest you can start, like all investing, the better. And if you do blow up your account, it's likely smaller when you're just getting started than it is 30 years into your investing career. Yeah, I would hope it would hurt just as much, honestly. Like I would hope it would hurt like to your ego just as much you understand what that feels like but at the same time like if you blow up a thousand dollar account which should not be the mission and goal to like you know rodeo cowboy this thing and throw a thousand dollars in and just play but you should have some sort of like system and process in place and learn how the mechanics and the process and the mechanisms of the market work and what better way to do it than to jumping into options trading which you can do on a much more controlled and risk-defined basis so i think when people say well you should start with stocks well you know tell me that to someone who invested in tesla six months ago and tesla is totally tanked right like they lost probably just just as much money in Tesla as they could ever have lost in a simple option strategy with defined risk. And if you can't trade a small account, then having a big account's not going to help you either, right? Never going to help you. Yeah. I was going to say, I love saying that. Like people always think that money is the issue. You know, if they only had more money to trade. And I always tell people, like, a bigger account is just going to be a recipe for you losing money faster. So that's why I actually hate when people start with a little amount and they literally email and they say, well, I'm just going to try it out. I'm just going to gamble. They don't say gamble. It's just code words, things like I'm going to try strategies. I'm going to you know, see what works for me. I'm going to test some things out. It's all code word for gamble. And I usually just tell people like quit while you're ahead because you're basically just you know setting yourself up psychologically for failure already. So how can a millennial exactly generate cash flow from options while also protecting their downside risk? Well, I don't think you can ever protect your downside risk. I think you can manage your downside risk, right? So the only way to protect downside risk is to stay in cash. And even in cash, you're going to lose money to inflation. 
So I think the beauty of options allows you to take what little capital you have and more effectively spread that capital and diversify that capital. And so if I look at somebody who just blindly invests in the SPX or the SPY or you know some index, but there are so many other things that you could do beyond just the market to improve your likelihood of success. I mean, many people have shown that even like a simple 60-40 bond portfolio that balances at the right time or use even like a very simple momentum strategy can crush the market. So, okay, so now we're just ahead by just using some simple you know momentum and timing factors to improve our performance, stuff that you can do once a month. So now why not try to use capital more efficiently, you know, use an option strategy that would replicate most of stock, if not all of stock, without all of the capital that's required to purchase stock outright. I think it's a much better use of your time. Can you give an example of a specific strategy or trade maybe that a millennial could put on? Yeah, I think if you're starting, the best place to start is with spreads because it's defined risk, defined profit. So everything you do with the spread, you know exactly what you're getting yourself into. There's no guesswork involved. And really, it's all defined math. You know how much you can make, you know how much you can lose, and you know the probability of success. So to me, that's the best way you can start. Like there's no out for you on that if you over allocate. Like if you invest too much money, that's on you. If you're just like wildly gambling and you know you have a low probability of winning, but you're trying to go for that home run and it doesn't work out, that's on you. So I think that it allows people to learn how things really function very quickly. So if you're starting young, if you're a millennial, if you're just getting into this, you probably want to focus on spreads because they can control risk so much better. And so to me, I think spreads are an easy way to do it because everything's defined. It's knowable. There's no unknown factors like margin fluctuations, and it makes it a lot easier for somebody starting out. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. 
Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. For those of you who might be new to options trading, can you explain where the odds or probabilities come from? Yeah, so in options trading, it's much different than a stock because in a regular stock trade, everything that is known obviously about the stock or is expected about the stock is priced in. And there's only one choice with a stock trade. You either buy the stock at the current price or you sell the stock at the current price. There's no future movement. You can't buy the stock prematurely at a future price. And someday it's everything's done on a basically like a cash basis right now. With options contracts, options contracts entertain two additional elements that make it more confusing and a little bit more complex to calculate, though it can be done. The two additional elements are time. So option contracts can have various timelines, no different than when you buy insurance for your car or your house, you can write a policy or buy an insurance policy for six months or a year or two years. You can buy life insurance policies that are 20-year terms or 10-year terms. So the longer that you buy protection, the more expensive generally the contracts become. And that's because they're capturing a longer time period. The second element that introduces a little bit of complexity into option pricing is the idea of strike prices. So strike prices, like we already talked about in our example, can be wildly different than what the stock is actually trading at right now. So if a stock is trading at $100, you could strike a deal, and that's why I usually like refer to the strike prices, you're striking a deal with the other party at a price point that is much higher than where the stock is trading now or much lower than where the stock is trading now. So now that we have these two additional elements that are kind of baked into option pricing, we now have some sort of time factor. So how far out is the contract until it expires? And then we have a strike price, which is how high or low, you know, how much higher or below the stock price is the strike price of the option contract, like where it actually kicks in and starts to make money or lose money or whatever. Now that we have these two elements, what we need to bring them all together is some sort of expectation of how volatile the stock is going to be. And so this is really where the probabilities are derived from. And they're derived from market participants, actually. So like when people always ask, like, who comes up with volatility? Well, volatility is a function of market participants. So the more active people buy or sell contracts or more actively bid up the price of a contract or not determines how likely they expect the stock to move in the future. And I always tell people like a good analogy of this is like, let's say you're buying a piece of property and you think that there's gold beneath that property. Like you don't know for sure, but you think that there's gold beneath that house. So you're probably more willing to pay for that house, maybe even above and beyond its asking price, because you're so confident that there's something beneath the surface, right? Now you don't know for sure, but you expect something. And that's a case of high volatility because either you're going to be really, really right or you're going to be really, really wrong. We actually see this a lot heading into an earnings event where stock volatility will start to go up. People expect a big move because there's an earnings event coming up and they don't know which direction the stock's going to move, but they expect it to move in either a big upward move or a big downward move to reprice it after earnings. So that's where this volatility kind of factor comes in. And once we figure out how much people think the stock is going to move, we can just simply apply simple statistics and probabilities to say, look, there's a 70% chance that the stock gets to this level based on what people think right now, or an 80% chance that it gets to this level. 
based on what people you know think and how they're trading right now. So it's a tricky subject for sure, but it's not overly complicated that it couldn't be understood. But that's where it comes from. It comes from option pricing. And you have to trade enough times to let that probability play out because just trading one time, two times, you might get lucky or you might get unlucky, but you have to really trade over a significant number of times in order to let those probabilities play out to their true potential. And actually, you know, if you have a 70% chance of being right, the price staying above a certain amount and that being a 70% chance, you actually have to trade that option enough times to let that actually take place, correct? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the things that absolutely fascinates me about just human psychology and behavior as an investor is this idea that a future expectation and future probability will play out after 10 occurrences. And I always challenge people on this. Like if I was flipping a coin with you, like so me and you are flipping a coin and I tell you that this is a fair coin, like it's 50% heads, 50% tails, you would agree with me, right? Like you'd say, yeah, that's a fair heads and tails coin. So I flip the coin five times in a row and it lands on five heads. Now, what a trader would do in this situation, right? If they were trading a you know 50% chance of success trade and they lost five times in a row, they'd be like, that's it. Markets are rigged. This is a scam. You're a scam. This whole thing is a scam. I knew it. I knew this stuff was like totally bogus. You know, you cannot even judge anything until you've had a couple hundred trades under your belt. I mean, really, realistically, you know, 10 trades isn't going to do it. 50, not 100, you might get lucky. Knowing that going into it should change and shift people's perspective on trading. You know, like if you know you've got to get to say 500 trades, well, now it becomes a game of like surviving, like making sure that somewhere randomly in that string of 500 trades, you don't let something knock you out. Like don't over allocate, don't be one directional. I need to get to 500 trades, you know, to let this thing really work out. Yeah. And that goes back to having realistic expectations, which is something that I always like to talk about because I think if you go into investing, whether it be options or stocks or anything really in the markets, if you have unrealistic expectations, that plays into human psychology and that leads to bad investment decisions. So I want to talk about Warren Buffett. He's obviously very famous for his value investing, but he's also a really big investor in options. But that gets very little coverage in relation to his value picks. Why do you think options trading gets relatively little coverage compared to other strategies? And why do you think more investors don't invest in options? You know, I think Buffett's a wonderful case study for many different reasons. When you look at the businesses he's in, and you actually go through and read the 10Ks and the 10Qs, which are all public information anyway, so anybody can do this on Berkshire anyway, he deliberately talks about the value that is inherent in an insurance business. And then therefore, he's got sections when he started selling option premium, no different than what me or you should be doing generally as investors as well. He talks about the inherent premium that's embedded in volatility and the overpricing and volatility. It's like black and white. It's right there in his 10Ks and 10Qs. He talks about you know the implied volatility premium and why we're doing this. And so if you look at him as an investor, his biggest stakes in companies are insurance. All he's doing is selling option contracts. An insurance contract is no different than selling an option contract. Different underlying asset, same mechanics go into play. And so I would argue that his actions being in the insurance business, therefore definitely make him, if not the biggest, one of the biggest that's ever walked the face of the planet, option sellers and pure option sellers. And look at how successful he's been generally in doing that. Why do you think that doesn't get more coverage? I don't think it's attractive. I think it's complex to some degree. I think it's easier to talk about Buffett's investment in Apple. It's hard to dissect options trading in a 15-minute segment on Warren Buffett. I mean, it's a very interesting concept of why people don't look at that business a little bit differently. But 
He's a big proponent of the insurance business for very much the same reasons why I love the options business. That's why I've studied him. I'm surprised that, you know, and I certainly haven't listened to every question that's ever been asked at a Berkshire meeting, but the ones that I have listened to, there's rarely questions about options. And that kind of surprises me. I think what surprises me is that when he did a big investment, I forget if it was in 2007 or 2008, but he wrote basically like $5 billion worth of option contracts on major indexes. And so to me, a five and a B and $5 billion worth of options contracts is worthy of a mention. But you didn't really see it anywhere. In fact, it was like very loosely written about. Some bloggers wrote about it. Some other investing publications picked it up. But otherwise, it was very loosely written. And that was, you know, at the height of high volatility market collapse. And here he is walking in doing what you know many people would say you should never do. It looks like that trade's going to pay out handsomely. In news headlines, you know, seeing options trading and all that, that doesn't sell as good as seeing Buffett and Apple all in the headlines. Exactly. You know, interestingly, though, he hasn't, and his predecessor, Ben Graham, neither of them have talked about options trading in any of their books either, which I found really interesting. Well, he does in the sense that he's called it weapons of mass destruction, which would be the first question I would ask him. So they talk about the insurance business, the float model of insurance, collecting premiums, being able to invest those premiums and cover losses and damages and all of the investing concepts that make you know regular investing so fun and interesting, but it's just coded in insurance. So if you replaced insurance in pretty much all of their conversations, it could easily be replicated with just option selling. So what is a popular myth or misconception about options trading that you'd like to debunk? And why do you think it exists? What is the actual truth? I have to continuously struggle and break people down to some degree to reframe how they think about trading. And it's mostly because people get into options trading assuming that it's a quick win, a quick buck. And it's just not. It couldn't be further from the truth. Now, could you make money quickly with option contracts? Yes, but that's all gambling. So you could make money quickly going into casinos. So I think the biggest myth is this idea that you can make money quickly. I would say the second one behind that is that if it works, then why doesn't everyone do it? And like, why is this edge still persistent? And that I think is actually a really interesting question and a question I'm so glad that a lot of people ask because you know a lot of people will go through our free training and courses and they'll say, Kirk, all this stuff makes sense. I see that there's an edge in selling options, but why on earth is this still here, right? If there's an edge, the market should be able to you know close that edge. If there's an arbitrage opportunity, the market should be able to squash that and capture that. Option contracts do something that is impossible to do at this point, right? They factor in the future. And because they have to guess with where the future is going to be, like how far a stock may or may not move in six months, which is still completely unknowable. I mean, I don't know of anything that can predict the future yet, but if something were to come up that could predict the future, it would totally crush options trading for sure. Until that day, because the future is unknowable, an edge in selling premium and volatility will always be there. The sheer fact that there is an unknowable force that could move the market at any moment creates a little bit of panic, like a hurricane. Like We don't know it's going to hit, but we, we kind of think it might hit, and they're willing to offset risk in order to protect themselves. And so that creates an opportunity. And so that, I think, is the most beautiful thing about options trading that really a lot of other investing vehicles don't have, is they have this very defined edge That's not going away anytime soon. The catalyst will change. Before it was terrorism attacks and it was the Fed and like future, it'll be something else. But that is a huge advantage for traders. So how would somebody, you know, with the internet, there's obviously so much information out there and you're saying that options is not a way to get rich quick. 
which I completely agree with. But then there's also a lot of gurus out there who are trying to sell courses and all this other material saying that options is a great way to get rich quick. How can people know what's really a trustworthy resource and how do they know what to really look for? I mean, look, it's like mostly smell test stuff. If it smells bad, it probably is bad. There's really no like getting around it. So to me, I think most of it's a smell test. I mean, look, at some point, if you get promised 50% returns per week, at that compounding rate, you would own the world in a couple of years, you know? And it's just doesn't make logical sense when you actually take it to its nth degree. I completely love that example because it's so true. When you look at it on the surface, you're like, you get really excited. But when you actually run out the numbers, like you said, you'll own the world in a couple of years, which obviously doesn't make sense. I also like to think about it in the sense of how is this person making their money? You know, if they're making all of their money from selling courses, you might not want to take options trading advice from them or stock trading or whatever it is. You probably want to take advice for somebody that's doing that just because they want to help people, not because that's their main source of income. You know, you probably want to listen to somebody that actually made money trading options or stocks or, you know, whatever it may be, not from those courses. I do have a different opinion on that. To some degree, that's totally true. I do think there's good people out there who, if they have a course and if they have something to say and they value their time and they want to charge for it, they got no problem with that, right? Do enough digging to understand like who you're really working with and you know, like what their presence is online. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. 
With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash MI. netsuite.com slash MI. That's netsuite.com slash MI. All right, back to the show. Now I want to talk about your entrepreneurial ventures. Can you talk to us about your strategy? Why do you give away a lot of your content for free rather than charging for it? I think it naturally just developed. So I don't think it was a foregone conclusion. Like I didn't start it and say, okay, I'm going to run this business model and I'm going to you know, run Option Alpha this way. It was very much something that evolved over time. And so when I started, what was the beginnings of Option Alpha? It was just literally a Google blog. And when I started trading at home, I needed some outlet to get my thoughts on paper because I was also paranoid about going back and reviewing my own psychology. Like, what did I think at that time six months ago when this happened? And I still do that. But I like to hear what I say and like how I have transitioned in thinking and how I've you know matured and evolved as an investor. And so much of Option Alpha started that way where I was just writing out on Google, on like a Google blog spot. And I started getting comments and people asking questions. And frankly, I was very selfish in that I didn't like to answer the same question twice. I thought that was inefficient. And so I started putting up a couple of videos that would explain it better than me typing it out in email. And for some reason, somebody just said, look, you know, you've got all these videos. Like, why don't you put together just a quick little course on options basics or something like that? And so it very much evolved that way, where it's just totally you know, like selfish in the sense I want to give away a lot of stuff. But eventually happened in option alpha was one, I think that this market is, you know, it's funny with traders and investors, you know, like we want to do better, but we need a safe space to learn. Because we don't want to look like idiots. Like my self-sabotaging belief is that I'm not good enough. And so like as a result, I have to overcome that by trying to do things perfectly. And I know that mentality because I don't want to ever put myself out there if I don't feel like I'm you know, good enough. And I don't do that as much now because now I can openly talk about all this stuff and I understand myself a lot better. But I think traders and investors needed a safe space. And, and to me, Option Alpha was that safe space where you could ask you know, questions and get responses and over time, it basically evolved into you know an area where I saw people you know starting to have a real need for education. So I really doubled down on it basically in 2013, basically right before my daughter was born. She was the catalyst. You know, I didn't want her to ever feel like I didn't put in enough effort and wasn't a good role model for her. That back to that whole like not good enough concept, right? <laughs> like didn't want her to not think I was good enough. And uh, so I doubled down on it. And what I eventually learned in doing that with like giving out free education and training, man, there was this huge crowdsourced opportunity to really not only build an incredible business around this. So, you know, like you take yourself back to 2013, 2012, and even today, there's not that much research on options. I mean, there's a couple little white papers here and there from a couple of places. AQR, CBOE has put up a couple of papers. Not a lot of research on option strategies. There's research on individual little tweaks, but not broad ranging strategies that you could use. And so my first thought was, okay, how can I figure out a way to, you know, run this blog and, you know, keep this thing alive basically with servers and emails and, you know, keeping people happy, but at the same time, take 
you know, what revenue we are generating and reinvest that back into research, that would be like self-fulfilling to me. Like I would want to know the answers to. And so what we've effectively done over the last 10 plus years now is done that basic cycle. So all the revenue that we take in, we spend almost no money on ads. When I tell you like almost no money, I think we literally spend $22 a month, if that on advertising. I mean, you think about that in the context of online media and stuff. We don't spend any on Google ads. We don't spend any on Facebook, nothing on Twitter, nothing on Instagram, nothing. It's all word of mouth. And so every dollar that we make, we just reinvest that into better technology, better research. And then we just push that back out to the community. I think it's so important to understand when listening to this, if you're interested in starting a business, that you don't necessarily have to know exactly where you're going. You just need to get started. You know, like I said, you didn't know where you're going in 10 years. Facebook didn't know. You know, when Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook in his dorm room, he didn't know that it was going to turn into the advertising powerhouse that it is today. He just thought he was creating a social network website where his friends could connect with one another. He didn't know what he was building. So when you're starting a business in entrepreneurship, you don't necessarily have to plan that you're going to be a billion dollar company. You just have to get started. What does your team at Option Alpha look like now? How has it evolved? So we've got 18 full time people right now. Most of that is development work. We have a great support customer success team that helps out with people and and then just, you know, team members that do podcasts and videos and editors and you know, it's evolved. I mean, it's definitely we were at a junction last year where we had to make, you know, some really big decisions on how we wanted to invest kind of our war chest of capital and what we wanted to do. And I think it's gonna pay off, you know, wildly well for everyone. So throughout this journey, throughout the last decade, what have been some of the biggest lessons or principles that you've learned while launching your business that millennial investors can learn from if they're interested in starting their own business? Yeah, I think the biggest one, again, is like to take your time and just go slow with it. Like I would encourage people to go real slow, actually. I think that kind of like breaks the mold in that, you know, a lot of people right now, and, and this is just maybe the time that we're in is so fast, fast, fast. Got to go fast to market. Everything's fast to market. Raise a bunch of capital, raise a bunch of debt, get your name out there, and then basically just see if it sticks, right? I'm more of a fan of talk to one person, see what their problem is, then talk to two people and see if they have the same problem, right, in investing. And this is what effectively we've done over the last couple of years, like the same questions and problems 200 times a day, right? So because we've taken our time to build a community now, slowly, we continuously hear the same problems. And when we hear the same problem over and over again, we try to solve it. And if we can solve it, we push it out. And then guess what? Then we get new problems. <laughs> you know, like, so if you work your business that way, I think you will grow a more stable, sustainable, powerful, like, you know, community changing business than if you were to try to rush things. From a human psychology perspective, how can somebody get over that hurdle. You know, they might have friends who are starting a startup and they're getting funding or doing all this crazy stuff that's popular right now. Or maybe they just read the headlines and they feel envious or they have FOMO, the fear of missing out. How can somebody just overcome that mental hurdle to just do what you're saying? Because I completely agree with you in that strategy, but that's tough for a lot of people. I've always had a much slower like cadence for how things should go, right? And I don't rush things. You know, what I think about when I think about just like psychology and mental toughness, whatever you want to call it, emotional awareness, I envision what I think it's going to be in the future. And then I just start slowly chipping away at it. You know, like I know where Option Alpha is going to be in three years. I can see it in my mind. I have a really good vision. I know where I'm going to be when I'm trading. I know what my life is going to be like with my family and like what I expect it to be. And I start slowly chipping away at it, knowing that I'm going to get there. 
it's a foregone conclusion that I'll be where I want to be. I just have to slowly chip away at it and, you know, start to make progress. I think people think about success differently in that they think that they have to build up to some success level in the future. And to me, that means that they force themselves to do things at a faster pace. Like, oh, I've got to build all this stuff like really, really fast. But you don't. You can just slowly peel away the layers of what eventually will become your business, right? So I think people just, they feel like a sense of urgency and this need to build something so quickly versus creating something that has more staying power. Well, there's so many things these days that are telling us the exact opposite. Like, Uber Eats, right? If you want food, you have instant gratification. You'll have the food to you in 10, 15 minutes. Or just Uber in general, you can have a car on demand or Netflix or all of these different things. We have in our cell phones just provide instant gratification these days. And I think that that's been ingrained in so many people's heads that when it comes to business entrepreneurship, they just want instant gratification. And in order to do that, you need scale and you need to grow quickly. I think there's businesses where like you have an opportunity and your opportunity is to, you have to just go for it, right? And you got to go all in. But I'm just not that type of person. Like I would never raise capital to do that, knowing that there's a you know high likelihood I fail and I'm going to lose everyone's money. Like that's just not my personality. So I know maybe that circles back to like my childhood and how it's like, I want to have like choice. Like I think your life should have options, not just options trading, but like I think you should have options. And so like running a business too quickly and over stretching yourself in many different ways, like, you know, operational or leverage wise, you know, scale wise, it's just a recipe for disaster. I mean, like the ones that we see are successful, we don't see the thousands that tried and failed, you know? And so I think if you looked at the success rate of somebody who built a business slowly over time, probably much better than somebody who, you know, ran and scaled it up to a unicorn that, you know, was one in a million. It's so interesting that you're saying this to me because when I first learned options, I thought it was this high-flying, super risky type strategy. So to hear somebody like you, who's one of the big faces of options trading, and you know we've gotten to know each other a little bit over the recent past, and it's so interesting that it's the complete opposite of what I expected. Whether it be about options trading or entrepreneurship, what is the number one piece of advice that you'd give to a millennial who has just a few thousand dollars that wants to invest in building an asset that will generate cash for them? I think you should be diversified in whatever you do. So if you're going to build cash flow, like don't have one source of income. That's where 99% of people's problems come from. They lose their job, they lose their income. So like we already know having two sources of income is better than one. So as you start to invest, invest in a multitude of different asset classes that would help you diversify your income. Number two is don't let anything become your sole source of income in that diversification stream. So even if you diversified and you had some money in real estate or some money in stocks or some money in options, like you should have small positions in everything that you do. So, you know, like that would be my biggest takeaways is like one, take your time. That's should be a foregone conclusion. We should need to say like, take your time, be patient, like let the numbers work out. You're geared and wired for success. Like you're going to be successful as long as you just give yourself an opportunity and enough patience to get there. You've provided a ton of value throughout this episode, Kirk. And I'm sure the listeners are going to want to learn more. Where can people learn more about you and all the things you have going on at Option Alpha? I appreciate that. So everyone can learn more about what we do at optionalpha.com. And then we're everywhere on social media at Option Alpha. I'll be sure to link to all of his social medias, optionalpha.com, everything Kirk's doing in the show notes. You guys can check it out. I've been a user of the platform and part of the community for a few years now. I've really enjoyed it. I highly recommend you guys go check it out. Kirk, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it very much. 
All right, guys, that's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.